So as you guys, those of you who are here last week, you uh, heard a little bit of what we're going to do for the next six weeks, and that's going to look at a series called, Is Christianity Relevant? And just this week, I saw a pastor tweet an article from the USA Today, which shows that in light of Irma and Harvey, the two hurricanes that have hit Texas and Florida, that the majority of relief efforts going on um, in our country are being done primarily through faith-based organizations. And what's interesting is it's not just churches opening up their food banks to the surrounding neighborhoods, but we're seeing massive uh, organizations of believers who are working with government agencies to provide warehouse space and trucks and debris removal facilities um, and, and things that are huge. And his point in sharing this was to show that eventually what you believe shapes how you act. If you believe in a God who reached into a uh, messy humanity in order to save and redeem, then you might find yourself in your world getting a little dirty as you reach into the life of those who are around you to help them um, get out of whatever it is that they are stuck in. And this is true in every area of life. What you believe ultimately influences how you act. But the flip side of this is true as well. Um, what you don't believe shapes how you act. And I think for for most of us who have grown up in the church, this is an area which is specifically true and often neglected, due largely in part to uh, America's history with the church and kind of being the assumption and having so much privilege. Unfortunately, what has happened is that Christianity has become synonymous with being Christian instead of believing Christian thoughts. And let me explain what I mean when I say that. Is, is Christianity for me... Um, and I don't know if it's for you or for your parents, but for me and my parents, it was almost a badge of belonging to be a Christian. Instead of being this renewed view of life and this renewed mentality, um, it, it was something which, which was just there. We were Christian by name, almost like a last name. And what happened was, um, is when we had a country where Christianity was namely a title or a, a placeholder on where you were socially or economically, is when people recognized the hypocrisy that was in there. Because if everyone's claiming to be Christian, and we don't see Christian actions everywhere, we don't see Christian belief everywhere, people are going to call that out. So they began to see this hypocrisy, and they began um, to, to, to poke at the shallowness of that Christianity. And what happened was people who saw Christianity as just a title, they began to fold under that pressure. Because they realized when opposition kind of forced their hand, that they didn't really see Christianity as influential as they thought it was. When the being Christian was threatened, they realized that there was really no substance to it. And that's why people now in America refer to America as kind of a post-Christian country. Uh, and people have all sorts of titles for what our social situation is like regarding faith. But all that means is that in America, Christian assumptions, and Christian morality, or whatever it is you want to say, are no longer the norm. But I think that's a good thing because perhaps it was our assumptions of our shallow assumptions of Christianity were exactly the things which needed to go. Because if the standard for truthfulness or relevance of Christianity is being seen as significant by culture at large, you really don't have a significant Christianity. If Christianity finds its worth and its popular acceptance by a culture, then it's not very worthy. Popular acceptance is no substitute for truth. So the question for is Christianity relevant can be answered two ways. One, is it relevant in the popular sphere of culture? Probably not, right? There's 15... 
15,000, well, there was 15,000 students here. There's 12,000 students on this campus, and there's 30 of us in here. So to a degree, it's not popular. But is that the right question? Because maybe the better question is, is Christianity relevant to humanity? Is Christianity relevant to mankind in general? And if what the Bible says is true, then the answer to that question, which is of far greater importance, is that what the Bible tells us about Jesus and what he did for us is the most influential and life-changing thoughts we can have about anything. And so in essence, what we're going to do for these next six weeks is we're going to look at the truthfulness of Christianity and tease out what Christian thoughts look like in various areas of our life. And what we want to do, because um, I know college is, for me, it was this, where I had to move past what I thought was Christianity and really get to what the substance of it was. It wasn't something new, but it was something that I assumed was present in that. And what we want to move from is we want to move from a Christianity as a sign of belonging to a specific subset of culture simply by being Christian. And instead, we want to go to belonging to Christ by believing the full gospel. We belong to Christ through faith. It is through faith that we belong to Jesus. So what that means is that what we think and what we believe are monumental in our ability to be Christian. To be Christian is first and foremost to believe Christian things. But in a large part, we leave believing at the door and we just take an empty title. So each week what we're going to do is we're really going to be looking at a biblical worldview of things. From vast monumental things like who should I marry to things which seem small and insignificant when you're in college. Like what am I going to do on my three-day weekend? But because the gospel is so big and so relevant, all of those things are deeply impacted by what we believe about the gospel. And tonight, um, here we are in the second full week of school. And we're going to be looking at education and careers. And each week, what we're going to do is we're going to take these uh, universal longings or universal uh, issues that we have, and what we're going to do is we're going to ask three questions of them. Is one, how does the Bible explain our desires for it? So tonight, how does the Bible explain our desires for education and career? And then we're going to look at how the gospel renews our desires for those things. And then lastly, we're going to ask how does the church embody those issues? So what I want to do right now is pray, and then we're going to get rolling um, tonight. So Lord, we thank you that you are a big, big God who has given us great news in Jesus Christ. And Lord, whether we realize that news or not, the fault is with us, not with you. And so we pray that you are gracious and kind to, to fan the flames of affection in our hearts, that we might see the radical a monumental change that the gospel brings to our life, that we were once dead, but now we're alive, and living people have a different means of existence than those who are dead. People with sight see a different world than those who are blind. And so I pray that you would, in a sense, uh, expand our idea of what it means to be Christian by showing us the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, and we know that this can't excuse me, this campus has people on it who need to hear the message of your good news. And I pray that by looking at the implications of our faith in all areas of life, that we are able to engage people who are even uh, different from us because we know that the gospel is relevant in their life. So we love you, Lord. We thank you for this time. We pray this in your name. Amen. So here we are. 
you're in college. Most of you are full-time students, and all of you, though, probably have some sort of aspiration in regards to a specific career you want to have um, or something that you want to do with your time, with your future, that brings some sort of fulfillment or purpose to your life. And so when you come to college, what you're generally looking for is not just to spend thousands and thousands of dollars uh, and live with random people. What you're looking for is to spend thousands and thousands of dollars and live with other people so that you can acquire skills or knowledge which contribute in the long run to either what it is you want to do or what it is you see as providing some specific purpose. And inside of how we view our education and our ultimate careers, we have this intermingling of what brings us joy and what brings us satisfaction and how we're going to leverage that to bring us leisure later in life. And we're going to address all of those issues, which are deeply tied to this. We're going to address all of those issues as we continue <clears throat> to progress through this series. So what I want to do is, is even though the issues of education and career have huge implications in different areas of our life, I want to look at two aspects of that tonight. And that is, in looking at education and career, we're going to focus on our desire to learn in education and our desire to contribute with our careers. And even if you are in college and you're hearing what I say and saying, I have zero value of contributing, I just want a higher paycheck. Our economy and our world has set it up so that higher pay scales are typically higher based on their contribution to whatever it is. Contribution still matters, even if you're unaware of it. Contribution is something that the world values. But the world values contribution because the Bible says the world values contribution. The Bible explains why you and your employers are, are, are set on this idea of contributing something to something. So let's begin by answering the first question tonight. And the first question is, how does the Bible explain our desires for education and careers? We didn't develop these things in a vacuum. Man didn't get together at this wonderful United Nations and say, we are wasting our life. Let's, let's get some drive, people. Let's put it together, right? God has wired us in such a way because he is the creator that he can explain why we have these universal longings best. And so we're gonna go back to the passage that Chris just read in the book of Genesis. And I don't know what your background is with the book of Genesis or with the church, but oftentimes we just see Genesis as a story of how we were made. But that's not the main point of Genesis. The main point of Genesis isn't how we were made. The main point of Genesis one through uh, three, which is kind of the creation account, is to actually tell us why we were made. For what purpose did God choose to make man? And what does it mean to be ideally human. So let's begin tonight by looking um, at Genesis 1, 26 through 29. If you have your Bible, Genesis is the very first book. Um, it's also going to be up on the screens for us. So beginning in verse 26, and then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them, that's man, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them as food. 
So you've probably heard this text before, right? Most of how many of you have never heard this text before? Okay, most of us. It's in in fact, this passage is often what's studied in a lot of literature classes. Have you encountered this in a literature class? Yeah. It's something that we look at as a model for, for literature, and there's a lot we can learn about this, and in a sense, we're going to continue going back to this, because this explains so much of who we are and what we are, but what I want to focus on right now is two things. Is first, that we were made in fellowship with God. Man was made in fellowship with God, and second, is that we were made with what I call a delegated dominion. A delegated dominion. I'm going to come back to that in a second. But we see with each of these, our relationship and our dominion, we see this twofold repetition of points. And you see that if you look at verse 26, um, God says, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness. And then skip down to verse 27 and we hear that exact same thing again. We see the fulfillment of it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so the next two weeks, next week we're looking at dating and relationships, uh, and then the following week we're looking at community and friendship, and we're going to really mind the depths of the implications of, of being made male and female in a community in relationship with God. And so I'm not going to spend much time on that this week because we're going to blow that up later, but what we want to see right now is that man was made in relationship with God, in the likeness of God, and because he was made in the likeness of God, God commissioned man to do something. God made on purpose, and he made for a purpose. It wasn't an accident that God created. He wasn't bored in heaven, and he sneezed, and here's this earth, and well, we'll do something with it. God created intentionally, and his creation that he created also had a purpose. And we see this purpose or this commission in verse 26 where it says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and again, so as we saw him expand on the likeness, he's going to expand on this commission in Genesis 1, 28 through 30, where he says this, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them as food. And every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And so here we say, it is, it's God who created the world. It's God who's the ultimate ruler of the world, but it's God who wanted to and saw it good to give man an aspect of dominion over this world. And we actually see this dominion, right? This authority that God gave, it extends everywhere. Birds in the sky, fish in the sea, grass on the ground, beasts on the earth. Everything comes under this authority that God gave Adam and Eve. And he created, but God wanted to give man an authority. And so perhaps you've heard this term like vice regent, this idea where you're acting as a representative of a greater ruler, but you're given a task to keep and to steward something. But for what purpose did God give Adam and Eve to steward the earth? Why did God give us dominion over all these things? Well, we saw that back in verse 28, for the purpose of filling the earth and subduing it. But what does that look like? What does this task of subduing the earth actually look like? We see this um, in verse, or chapter 2, excuse me, verse uh, 5. God says this, or Moses says this. 
When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And so there's something really significant inside this verse that it's really easy to, to breeze past. And here, um, the author is explaining why it is that there's no life here. And he says, one, God hasn't brought rain. But two, there's no man to work the ground. There's no man to work the earth. There's no man to develop it. There's no man to take care of it. And so now, knowing that void, look at what happens in the next verses, picking up in verse six. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. So in this barren land, God made a garden, right? We see the barrenness in verse five. There's no bush of the field and no plant on the land. And God made a garden and he put man in it. God made the fruit, God made the trees, and he put man in it for what purpose? Look down in your Bibles or up on the screen again to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So we saw originally God made them to have dominion and that look, what did that dominion look like? Filling the earth and subduing it. And here we see a glimpse of what that subduing of the earth looks like. God created man in his image, in a relationship with God, so that man would expand the garden to keep it and to bring that garden from what God created and fill what was this desert wasteland. And the garden was more than just a garden. If we read Genesis, we see the garden is where God put man the garden is where God walked with man. The garden was the place where man experienced the greatest relational unity with God. And God gave him this garden and he said, grow it, expand it, subdue the earth, increase the size of it, use the seeds, use the trees, use the animals, use whatever I have given you for the purpose of going out and building this garden bigger so that more and more people can live inside of my garden, so that more people can come and live in this right relationship with God. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the, with the Bible, you know that we are not yet to where sin has entered the world. This is Genesis 1 and 2. Sin comes in Genesis 3. So that means man's task to go out and subdue is not this dangerous wild frontier. Man was called to go out and to subdue and to work, but there are no threats to him. This was something where he was given not only the call, but the safety and security to go and do this to the glory of God, to grow God's kingdom so that more and more people could be inside with him. And sure enough, you fast forward a couple chapters and we see Adam and his family. It's not a good story here, but we see Adam and his family and they're farmers. And they've created tools and farming systems, and they have animals, and they're growing crops. And here's the thing, though. So we just read God's instructions in two places, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, to man. And in no place did God sit them down and give them an agrarian handbook. Okay? God didn't go to the, to the Babylonian Crescent Home Depot and set up like a seminar on how is it you can live in a pre-agrarian culture and foster gardens with primitive tools. Okay? What happened was Adam and Eve figured it out. 
But why did they figure it out? It's not outside of God's plan. But God made man and Adam and Eve in his image, not only with the call to go and work, but also with the ability to discover how to work more efficiently, how to work more productively, and how to faster and with greater ease bring the world into submission. This means that every desire we have to learn, every time you watch something on the History Channel or Discovery Channel, you say, that's really cool. And you whip out your phone and you start Googling it. And you look at Wikipedia and you're trying to learn about this. That's because we are running into aspects of the image of God which show that we have a desire to learn, to grow, and to discover. The reason why you're here in college is because God made us to increase our capacity to understand the world which is around us. God created man to bring structure, order, and expansion to God's creation. And in Revelation 21, we see a glimpse into the new heavens and the new earth. So Revelation, or Genesis 1 is the beginning of humanity. Revelation 21 is the end of humanity. And in that, it's described as a garden city. We hear lots of the same imagery that God's using in the beginning of the Bible here. And what that shows is that it was Adam's ultimate job. If nothing went wrong, it was Adam's job and therefore man's job to build a desert garden into a garden city. God tasked man to grow, to expand civilization, to subdue the earth, to invent things that helped men, that glorified God, to serve one another, to live in harmony with each other, a place where humanity flourished and in the midst of them was a God who was glorified by all. And there would be no hostility from the earth to us, from us to the earth, or from us to other men. That would have been a perfect world. But sin corrupted this. Man was meant to serve God by working and discovering things in a right relationship with him. But in Genesis 3, when Satan came, he used man's desire to learn as a stumbling block. The serpent came to Eve, and she says, did God really say? He even attempted to use God's words to pervert what it was that God had said. And he tempts her with knowledge. Well, God said... He, he told you not to eat this, but he doesn't want you to eat it because if you ate it, you would be like him and you would know good and evil. You see, Adam and Eve were hooked by sin by thinking that their ingenuity was best disconnected from God. That their thoughts, that their ability to understand, that their task to work was actually being limited by the God who created them. And Adam and Eve took the bait, hook, line, and sinker, and they ate from the tree, and sin entered the world. And see, at its core, our desires for education and career are really desires for truth and for purpose. In education, we want to discover truth, and in careers, we want to find purpose for ourselves or contribution to the world around us. And both of those things, both of those desires were present in the garden. God gave us truth by being the only source of counsel we had. And God gave us purpose by giving us a clear call to expand the garden. But these were corrupted by sin. You see, the truth was that the greatest joy, the truth was that man's greatest joy was not to be like God, which is what the serpent said, but man's greatest joy was to be with God, working for his glory 
and working for his praise. And when we listened to the snake, when Adam and Eve listened to the snake, it means our ability to understand the world around us, our ability to perceive truth and purpose became disconnected from God. And because of that, everything became harder. Our task of fulfilling or filling the earth, our task of subduing the earth became, um, there was a, a hurdle put in the middle of it. And we see this because as for the filling of the earth, we see a curse towards the woman and it says that you are now going to have pain in childbirth. Okay? My wife has had two children. It wasn't a massage. Okay? It was painful. But there was a point where the, the task of fulfilling the earth with people would have been painless and beautiful because there was no sin. But now there's hardship and there's pain and there's danger in it. And then for the man, look at what God says to the man in Genesis 3, 17 through 19. And he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and that's not an indictment on the wife, um, and that's not an indictment to just stereotypical man-woman things, but that's an indictment to Adam's weakness to love his wife. He says, uh, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. You see, it's because of sin that learning, work, bringing order, and subduing is hard. Sin distorts what God created for good. It complicates things. Every time you forget an answer to a test, how many of you have sat at a test, you're like, I just studied this for three hours. This was on one of my note cards, and here's a blank, and I can't think of it. Not for the life of me. Every time that happens, you're being reminded of the dangerous effects of sin. That to grow, that to learn, to understand, and to contribute is harder because sin is in our midst. But sin not only complicated the task, but because sin severed our relationship with God, we often disassociate our task from the God who created us. We begin to work, not only with hard work, but with work that doesn't find its end in God. You see, we go to work without any idea or understanding of how God wants to use our work to bring him glory and to serve man. We concentrate on our studies and perhaps we even choose our majors and our careers without ever considering how these truths that we are learning teach us about God and his plan for humanity. So when you think of your own studies, or your own careers, your own aspirations, how do you think it serves God? How do you think it fits inside of God's plan to bring about a civilization that worships him, that praises him, that sees God's truth? See, to have these thoughts are not to have deep thoughts, they're just to have Christian thoughts. To answer this question is to look at the world through the lens of Christianity, and to answer this, we then need to answer our second question. How does the gospel renew our ideas of education and career? We see how the Bible explained it. God created us in a relationship to do a task. But how does the gospel renew it when sin has distorted it? Two words are important here. The first is renewed. Christianity doesn't create an alternate way of life that's distinct. It renews what has been corrupted. 
Christianity is a return to the, what life was meant to be. And the second word is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. The gospel is the good news that the, where the first Adam failed, Jesus was coming to practice perfect obedience to God. Look at Matthew 4, 1 through 7. So this is the temptation of Jesus. And I want you to hear the first seven verses here. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That's, I call that the biggest understatement in all scripture, okay? He didn't eat for 40 days, and by the end of it, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, that's Jesus, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For as it is written, and Satan begins to quote scripture here, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You should not put the Lord your God to the test. So, what does this passage have to do with our desires for education and careers? It actually has a lot to do with it. Stephen just met a guy on campus the other day um, who, as soon as he found out we were a Christian group, he said, I'm too much into science to believe in Christianity. Garrett's about to throw down. Um, earlier this year, there was a march on Washington that was pitted as some sort of scientific truth over and against the less scientific claims of religion. It's called, does anyone know, isn't it like the March for Reason or something like that? Basically, the, the, the community of those who value truth were marching on Washington to show that religion has no place in this world because religion doesn't understand the true reality. But what we just saw in Matthew was the temptation of Jesus by Satan himself. Stronger than culture, more powerful than culture, Satan began to tempt Jesus, and what this story showed is that truth wasn't the problem. It was the interpretation of truth which was the problem. You see, Satan came at Jesus with direct quotes from scriptures, scriptures with Jesus himself had used to say, I'm the Messiah. You saw this scripture, I'm here to fulfill it. Scriptures that if Jesus were to say that's not true, would discredit much of what Jesus claimed he came to do. So how does Jesus fight Satan's usage of truth, right? How many of you have been in the context of uh, perhaps a church which is close to Christianity, but not Christianity? And they use the Bible, and you say, well, I don't know, what am I supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do when people claim to have truth and use it as a trump card? Well, here's what Jesus did. Jesus interpreted pieces of truth in light of the whole truth. See, Satan quotes Psalm 91. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6. See, Jesus took the truth and acknowledged the truthfulness of what it was that Satan said, but he interpreted it with the whole of what is true. That is true, but so is this. This is true, but I also know this to be true. The question for the Christian is always, what do I know to be true? And truth interprets truth. Truth pulled out of context is not helpful. And the context which Christians learn is that all truth is God's truth. 
God created this world. God designed this world. God weaved every aspect of research that is happening on this campus. God has woven in those details and those patterns and those intricacies because he is an infinitely complex God. And all truth is consistent, not simply with this world. All truth is consistent with the God who created this world. That's why we don't have to be fearful of miracles where scientists say that can't happen because it breaks the natural order. But the world wasn't made in order with itself. The world was made in order with the God who created it. It's completely consistent with the God who is the Lord of all things. So this is the temptation you have. The temptation we have in college, the temptation I have in college, the temptation you will have whenever you encounter truth of any kind is to find that one aspect of truth and to find yourself at the center of it. What does this say about me? What does this say about my studies? What does this say about my career and what I want to accomplish? But what Jesus modeled, Jesus, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of God, Jesus who is fully God, he takes this truth, but he interprets it so that he finds God at the center of it. The truth is in submission to God. And so when you encounter truths in literature, biology, sociology, HHP, or in law, whatever it is you're finding, you're finding glimpses of God's truth, which you can either try to interpret outside of the God who created it, which is to find it in a wrong context, or you can choose to submit it to the eternal God who is truth and find its purpose in light of the bigger truth of what God has made. What does this mean? What does it mean to take truth and submit it to God, right? We get that. We can understand those words. But as you're learning, as you're discovering these truths, as you're wanting to be inventive, what does it mean to interpret all truths in submission to God? Well, look at what happens next um, in verse 8. Again, <clears throat> the devil took him to a, very, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he, that Satan, said to Jesus, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you should serve. So here we see uh, the third and final temptation um, of Satan to Jesus. He's pulling out Satan's putting all his cards on the table and he's trying to get Jesus to fold. And so he takes him to this highest point and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory and all their citizens and all the civilization that's there. And he says, if you bow down and worship me, all these people will worship you. I will give you the kingdoms. I will give you the nations. I will give you the globe. And in a sense, that's what Jesus came to do. Those of you who are with us on Sunday, we read in John 12, Jesus says, I will draw all men to myself. The point of Jesus, we even see in Colossians and Paul's own writing that all things are to Jesus. Jesus was offered what Jesus came for. But Jesus knew that that wasn't the way. Jesus heard this claim, which was what even the Old Testament said he was going to be, we saw again in Isaiah, he would be lifted up as a signal for all the nations. And here Satan's saying, I'm going to make you that signal. I'm going to give you that glory. But Jesus pushed back 
on that truth with more truth, right? Jesus goes back to the well of scripture. He interprets what Satan said is true and he interprets it in light of more truth, saying you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus says, you can give me that, but you're not God, so I can't worship you. You see, it would have been easier for Jesus to bow to Satan, wouldn't it? Right? No public mockery, no shameful march towards Calvary, no rejection by all of his disciples and his closest friends, no agonizing death on the cross. But what Jesus pushed back with was a clear understanding of God's purpose for him, a clear understanding of what God was doing to restore and redeem humanity. You see, Jesus knew that he came not only to be worshipped, but to be worshipped by the humanity he was going to restore back to God by dying on the cross for their sins. That means at the truth level, Jesus knew that Satan's claim had no truth because he would not be worthy of worship if he chose to find his purpose outside of God's plan for the whole world. But when he met God's purpose, then Jesus would be glorified. The whole work of Jesus was bound up by God's truth in submission to God's plan. It's God's truth, and it finds its context in God's plan. And for Jesus, that was what was most beneficial to him and most beneficial for humanity. And because Jesus chose to submit to God's truth and to not take the easy way out, but instead to endure painful suffering at the hands of wicked men, he died on the cross to take our punishment for our sins. He came to restore us to the relationship we had in the garden through faith. And look at what happens because of this. 1 Corinthians uh, 2, 12 through 16. And be thinking of how we think and how we learn, beginning in verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, that is the person who does not uh, believe in Jesus, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for their folly, their foolishness to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, that's Christians, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have the mind of Christ. So that means that Christian thought, right? If we're going to be Christian by believing instead of simply being Christian, That means that every time we encounter truth on the spectrum of truth and every aspiration we have in regards to purpose and meaning gets to get sifted by God's glorious plan in salvation for all eternity. That's the task of being Christian. And so to be thoughtless about your career or how it is you want to contribute, to be thoughtless about what it is you're learning is actually to neglect one of the greatest insights you will ever have, an insight with years of education could never teach you because it was taught to you by God through your salvation. You see, it's one thing to make contributions to your business and your sphere of education, but it's another thing when those same contributions can matter in eternity because you see it in light of God's great reclamation project of drawing all men back to himself. And this is where we ask the last question tonight, right? We saw the Bible explains our desires, 
The gospel renews it because we could see it in light of Christ because Christ has saved us and redeemed us. But now we're going to see how does the church embody education and career? How do you spend your next four, three, one year learning and growing for the sake of Christ? You all met uh, Dr. Abe Kim last week. Most of you did. Um, he, I'm going to brag on him because uh, he's worthy of bragging on. He's our, our, camp, our faculty representative for Grizzly Christian Fellowship. He goes to Sovereign Hope Church. He's a member there. He's a director of the Mansfield Center. If, and if you want to know a bright guy, just get to know Dr. Kim. He has the Ivy League trifecta, a bachelor's from Boston University, a master's from Harvard University, and a PhD from Columbia. Okay? The guy gets around. He's well-respected. He's brilliant. And he works in political science and international affairs. He's the executive director of the, Mike, or the Maureen and Mike Mansfield Center. And the center exists to, to further the vision of Mike Mansfield, who was a senator um, for Montana. And his vision was to pursue international relations, which promoted human flourishing. Um, it was to pursue peace and economic solutions, to participate in global partnerships and increased living conditions. That's what the whole center is set out to do. They have huge conferences with people from all over the world trying to solve and contribute to humanity's plight. They want to help the world. But Abe's vision for what he wants to do at his job goes further than anybody else's. Because though Abe respects and appreciates what Mike Mansfield has done, Abe isn't pursuing those things only in the legacy of a senator. Abe is doing the same work to the same end, but with a different weight because he sees his ability to make sense of this world, to understand and to contribute as interactions with God's truth for God's glory and to God's ends. And so he can do these things and pursue these things and say, one day there will be a world where this becomes natural. We're not having to solve poverty. We're not having to eliminate human trafficking because God has done that. But I could pursue this to the glory of God because I'm participating in God's call, but I could also use it as a witness to how this truth represents God's greater truth. It doesn't distract him from what the world would say is truth. It's not that he's a Christian and now he's gone back to his PhD diploma from Columbia. He's like, well, this is a worthless piece of trash. It's actually his faith which fuels his desire for truth because he wants to see the depth of beauty of what God has created and put it in submission to God's plan. So Grizzly Christian Fellowship, we don't want this to distract you from your studies. We want this to fuel your passion for your studies. We do not have enough Christian thinkers in this world. We do not have enough people who want to be brilliant scholars and contributors to society, to the glory of God and to the good of man. We want you to cure cancer, to design art, to, to write books and to restore engines, all while using these experiences to point to God's greater promises inside of his salvation. You see, Acts 17, we see a model of what this should look like in our life. Paul goes to this place called the Areopagus, which was basically just the first century liberal arts school. It's all these philosophers talking about new things, trying to solve existential crises back in that day before Twitter happened. Um, and in going there, he did two things. The first thing he did is he sought as a sphere 
for evangelism, to proclaim the gospel to those who are there. It, or he gets there, Paul gets there, he says, hey, I see you're doing these things, but I'm going to tell you about Jesus. I see you're looking for a God, let me tell you who that God is. But the second thing he does is he knew that he could use truth that these men discovered as a great gateway to God's greater truth. And Paul's going to quote two philosophers of the day, right? These would be blue-checked guys on Twitter. These were big wigs that were talking in that day. And Paul's going to use these guys to point to God's greater truth. Look at Acts 17, verses 26 through 28. This is picking up, this is Paul talking. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he, that's God, is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's quote one. And then Paul says, and even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. So Paul quotes these two dudes. And he takes the truthfulness of what they communicated and he points it back to God. We don't need to be fearful of truth because all truth is leverage of the God who created it. We can encounter that truth and we can misinterpret it and we can misapply it, but with the help of God, we're able to see all truthfulness and lean into it and put it in submission to God's great glory. That means for you, while you're not in a career yet, you, like Paul, can see this place of learning as a place where the gospel needs to be shared where you can go and you can contribute in this immediate time by altering eternity, by proclaiming the eternity-changing message of Jesus Christ. It also means that we can take the truth that we're learning with our peers and our classes and we can explode it by putting it in submission to God's plan. We need more Christian thinkers because Christian thinkers have the only true view of reality because they see the problem of humanity and the solution for it. They see what went wrong and they see what it will ultimately be and how it will ultimately be so. And so we have right expectations of what it is we can fix, what it is we can limit. And we have right expectations of the God who created all things. You see, we find ultimate purpose and ultimate truth when we find ourselves inside of God's salvation for us in Jesus Christ. So if you want relevance in your studies, study the gospel and let the gospel shape your studies for the gospel is the ultimate barometer of what is true and beneficial. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot um, that you have to say about uh, how we learn and what we are to do. And what a crazy thing that never in, in all of your word do you come to those who believe in you and you say, this is the job that you have to do. This is the way you need to do it. But instead, you've given us a salvation. And inside that salvation, you've commissioned us to tell people about Christ and to glorify you. And we can do that in so many different ways. We can do it as a pastor. We can do it as a missionary. We can do it as a doctor. We can do it as a mechanic because the root of what is effective is not specifically the task, but how we see the task fitting in light of your plan. So Lord, give us eyes to be astounded by your truth as we discover it in our classes and give us hearts that want to contribute to eternity by calling people back to God, back to his garden, 
so that we might live in a right relationship with the God who is all truth. I pray this in your name. Amen.